Chapter 9 of The Golden Silence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading done by Jules Harlock of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. The Golden Silence by Alice Muriel and Charles Norris Williamson. Chapter 9 Janan el Jouad was a labyrinth. Stephen Knight abandoned all attempts at keeping a mental clue before he had reached the drawing-room. Neville led him there by way of many tile-paved corridors, lit by hanging Arab lamps suspended from roofs of arabesque cedarwood. They went up or down marble steps into quaint little alcove rooms furnished with nothing but divans and low tables or dower chests crusted with syrian mother-of-pearl on into rooms where brocaded hung walls were covered with arab musical instruments of all kinds or long-necked moorish guns patterned with silver ivory and coral here and there as they passed were garden glimpses between embroidered curtains looking through windows always barred with greenish wrought iron so old as to be rarely beautiful and some small windows had no curtains but were thickly frilled outside with the violent crimson of bougainvillea or fringed with tassels of wisteria loop on loop of amethyst high above these windows which framed flowery pictures were other windows little and jewelled mere plaques of filigree workmanship fine as carved ivory or silver lace and lined with colored glass of delicate tints gold lilac and pale rose here's the drawing-room at last said neville and here's my aunt if you can call it a drawing-room objected a gently complaining voice a filled-in court where ghosts of murdered slaves come and moan while you have your tea how do you do, Mr. Knight? I'm delighted you've taken pity on Neville. He's never so happy as when he's showing a new friend the house, except when he's obtained an old tile or a new monster of some sort for his collection. In me, he kills two birds with one stone, said Stephen, smiling as he shook the hand of a tiny lady who looked rather like an elderly fairy disguised in a cap that could have been born nowhere except north of the Tweed. She had delicate little features which had been made to fit a pretty child and had never grown up. Her hair of a reddish yellow had faded to a yellowish white, which by a faint fillip of the imagination could be made to seem golden in some lights. Her eyes were large and round and of a china-blue color her eyebrows so arched as to give her an expression of perpetual surprise her forehead full her cheekbones high and pink her small pursed mouth of the kind which prefers to hide a sense of humour and then astonish people with it when they have ceased to believe in its existence if her complexion had not been netted all over with a lacework of infinitesimal wrinkles she would have looked like a little girl dressed up for an old lady. She had her ribbon of the MacGregor tartan on her cap, 
and an uncompromising cairngorm fastened her fichu of valuable point lace a figure more out of place than hers in an ancient arab palace of algiers it would be impossible to conceive yet it was a pleasant figure to see there and stephen knew that he was going to like neville's aunt caroline lady macgregor i wish you looked more of a monster than you do said she because you might frighten the ghosts we're eaten up with them the way some folks in old houses are with rats nearly all of them slaves too so there's no variety except that some are female i've given you the room with the prettiest ghosts but if you're not the seventh son of a seventh son you may not see or even hear them does neville see or hear asked stephen as much as aunt caroline does if the truth were known answered her nephew only she couldn't be happy unless she had a grievance here she wanted to choose an original and suitable one so she hit upon ghosts the ghosts of slaves murdered by a cruel master hit upon them indeed she echoed indignantly making her knitting needles click a movement which displayed her pretty miniature hands half hidden in lace ruffles as if they hadn't gone through enough in flesh and blood poor creatures some of them may have been my countrymen captured on the seas by those horrid pirates who was the cruel master stephen wanted to know still smiling because it was almost impossible not to smile at lady macgregor not my brother james i'm glad to say she quickly replied it was about three hundred years before his time and though he had some quite irritating tricks as a young man murdering slaves wasn't one of them to be sure they tell strange tales of him here as i make no doubt neville has already mentioned because he's immoral enough to be proud of what he calls the romance i mean the story of the beautiful arab lady whom james is supposed to have stolen from her rightful husband that is if an arab can be rightful and hidden in this house far many a year till at last she died after the search for her had long long gone by you're as proud of the romance as i am or you wouldn't be as such pains to repeat it to everybody pretending to think i've already told it said neville but i'm going to show knight his quarters pretty or plain there are no ghosts here that will hurt him and then we'll have lunch for which he's starving stephen's quarters consisted of a bedroom furnished in tunisian style with an imposing four-poster of green and gold ornamented with a gilded sacred cow under a crown and a sitting-room gay with colorful decorations imported from morocco these rooms opened upon a wide covered balcony screened by a carved wooden lattice and from the balcony stephen could look over hills near and far dotted with white villas that lay like resting gulls on the green wave of verdure which cascaded down to join the blue waves of the sea up from that far blueness drifted on the wind a murmurous sound like aeolian harps mingled with the tinkle of fairy mandolins in the fountains of the court below 
At luncheon, in a dining room that opened on to a white-walled garden where only lilies of all kinds grew, to Stephen's amazement, two Highlanders in kilts stood behind his hostess's chair. They were young, exactly alike, and of precisely the same height, six foot two at least. No, you are not dreaming them, Mr. Knight, announced Lady MacGregor, evidently delighted with the admiring surprise in the look he bestowed upon these images. And you're quite right. They are twins. I may as well break it to you now, as I had to do to Neville when he invited me to come to Algiers and straighten out his housekeeping accounts. They play Ruth to my Naomi. Whither I go, they go also even to the door of the bathroom, where they carry my towels, for I have no other maid than they. Stephen could not help glancing at the two giants, expecting to see some involuntary quiver of eye or nostril answer electrically to this frank revelation of their office. But their countenances, impossible to think of as mere faces, remained expressionless as if carved in stone. Lady MacGregor took nothing from Mohammed and the other Kabyle servant who waited on Neville and Stephen. Everything for her was handed to one of the Highlanders, who gravely passed on the dish to their mistress. If she refused a plate favored by them, instead of carrying it away, the giants in kilts silently but firmly pressed it upon her acceptance until in self-defense she seized some of the undesired food and ate it under their watchful eyes. During the meal a sudden thunderstorm boiled up out of the sea. The sky became a vast brazen bowl, and a strange coppery twilight bleached the lilies in the white garden to a supernatural pallor. The room, with its embroidered moorish hangings, darkened to a rich gloom but Mohammed touched a button on the wall and all the quaint old Arab lamps that stood in corners or hung suspended from the cedar roof flashed out cunningly concealed electric lights. At the same moment there began a great howling outside the door. Mohammed sprang to open it and in poured a wave of animals. Stephen hastily counted five dogs, a collie, a white deer hound, a dandy Dinmont, and a mother and child of an unknown race, which he afterward learned was Kabyle, a breed beloved of mountain men and desert tent dwellers. In front of the dogs bounded a small African monkey, who leaped to the back of Neville's chair, and behind them toddled with awkward grace a baby panther, a mere ball of yellow silk. They don't like the thunder, poor dears, Neville apologized. That's why they howled, for they're wonderfully polite people, really. They always come at the end of lunch. Aunt Caroline won't invite them to dinner, because then she sometimes wears fluffy things about which she has a foolish vanity. The collie is Angus's, the deerhound is Hamish's, the dandy is hers. The two Kabyles are Mohammed's, and the flotsam and jetsam is mine. There's a great deal more of it out of doors, but this is all that gets into the dining room except by accident, and I expect you think we are a very queer family. 
Stephen did think so, for never till now had he been a member of a household where each of the servants was allowed to possess any animals he chose, and flood the house with them. But the queerer he thought the family, the better he found himself liking it. He felt a boy let out of school after weeks of disgrace and punishment, and, strangely enough, this old Arab palace in the city of North Africa seemed more like home to him than his London flat had seemed of late. When Lady MacGregor rose and said she must write the note she had promised Neville to send Miss Ray, Stephen longed to kiss her. This form of worship not being permitted, he tried to open the dining-room door for her to go out, but Angus and Hamish glared upon him so superciliously that he retired in their favor. The luncheon hour, even when cloaked in the mysterious gloom of a thunderstorm, is no time for confidences. Besides, it is not conducive to sustain conversation to find a cold nose in your palm, a baby claw up your sleeve, or a monkey hand like a bit of leather thrust down your collar or into your ear. But after dinner that night, when Lady MacGregor had trailed her malign fluffiness away to the drawing-room, and Neville and Stephen had strolled with their cigarettes out into the unearthly whiteness of the lily garden, Stephen felt that something was coming. He had known that Stephen had a story to tell by and by, and though he knew also that he would be asked no questions in return, now or ever, it occurred to him that Neville's offer of confidences was perhaps meant to open a door, if he chose to enter by it. He was not sure whether he would so choose or not, but the fact that he was not sure meant a change in him. A few days ago, even this morning, before meeting Neville, he would have been certain that he had nothing intimate to tell Kiard or anyone else. They strolled along the paths among the lilies. Moon and sky and flowers and white gravel paths were all silver. Stephen thought of Victoria Ray and wished she could see this garden. He thought, too, that if she would only dance here among the lilies in the moonlight, it would be a vision of exquisite loveliness. For a moment white, then gone forever, he caught himself repeating again. It was odd how, whenever he saw anything very white and of dazzling purity, he thought of this dancing girl. He wondered what sort of woman it was whose image came to Neville's mind in the garden of lilies that smelled so heavenly sweet under the moon. He supposed there must always be some woman whose image was suggested to every man by all that was fairest in nature. Margot Lorenzi was the woman whose image he must keep in his mind if he wanted to know any faint imitation of happiness in future. She would like this moonlit garden, and in one way it would suit her as a background. Yet she did not seem quite in the picture, despite her beauty. The perfume she loved would not blend with the perfume of the lilies. And Caroline's rather a dear, isn't she? remarked Neville, apropos of nothing. She's a jewel, said Stephen. Yet she isn't the immediate jewel of my soul. 
I'm hard hit, Stephen, and the girl won't have me. She's poorer than any church or other mouse I've ever met. Yet she turns up her little French nose at me and my palace, and all the cheese I should like to see her nibble. My cheese. Her French nose, echoed Stephen. Yes, her nose and the rest of hers French. Especially her dimples. You never saw such dimples. Miss Ray's prettier than my girl, I suppose. But I think mine's beyond anything. Only she isn't and won't be mine. That's the worst of it. Where is she? Stephen asked. In Algiers? No such luck, but her sister is. I'll take you to see the sister tomorrow morning. She may be able to tell us something to help Miss Ray. She keeps a curiosity shop and is a connoisseur of eastern antiquities, as well as a great character in Algiers. Quite a sort of queen in her way, a quaint way. All the visiting royalties of every nation drop in and spend hours in her place. She has a good many Arab acquaintances, too. Even rich chiefs come to sell or buy things from her and respect her immensely. But my girl, I like to call her that, is away off in the west, close to the border of Morocco, at Clemson. I wish you were interested in mosques, and I'd take you there. People who care for such things sometimes travel from London or Paris just to see the mosque of Sidi Bou Medine and a certain Mirab. But I suppose you haven't any fad of that kind, eh? I feel it coming on, said Stephen. Good chap. Do encourage the feeling. I'll lend you books, lots of books on the subject. She's Malema, or mistress of an ecole indigen for embroideries and carpets at Clemson. Heaven knows how few francs a month she earns by the job which takes all her time and life. Yet she thinks herself lucky to get it, and she won't marry me. Surely she must love you, at least a little, if you care so much for her, Stephen tried to console his friend. Oh, she does, a lot, replied Neville, with infinite satisfaction. But you see, well, you, you see, her family wasn't up to much from a social point of view, such rot. The mother came out from Paris to be a nursery governess when she was quite young, but she was too pretty for that position. She had various but virtuous adventures and married a non-com in the Chasseur d'Afrique, who chucked the army for her. The two kept a little hotel. Then the husband died while the girls were children. The mother gave up the hotel and took in sewing. Everybody was interested in the family. They were so clever and exceptional, and people helped in the girls' education. When their mother became an invalid, the two contrived to keep her and themselves, though Jean was only eighteen then and Josette, my girl, fifteen. She's been dead now for some years, the mother. Josette is nearly twenty-four. Do you see why she won't marry me? I'm hanged if I do. I can see what her feeling is, Stephen said. She must be a ripping girl. I should say she is, though as obstinate as the devil. Sometimes I could shake her and box her ears. I haven't seen her for months now. She wouldn't like me to go to Clemson, unless I had a friend with me and a good excuse. 
I didn't know it could hurt so much to be in love, though I was in once before, and it hurt too, rather. But that was nothing, for the woman had no soul or mind, only her beauty, and an unscrupulous sort of ambition which made her want to marry me when my uncle left me his money. She'd refused to do anything more serious than flirt and reduce me to misery, until she thought I could give her what she wanted. I'd imagined myself horribly in love, until her sudden willingness to take me showed me once for all what she was. Even so, I couldn't cure the habit of love at first, but I had just sense enough to keep out of England where she was, for fear I should lose my head and marry her. My cure was rather slow, but it was sure. And now I know that what I thought was love then wasn't love at all. The real thing's as different as, as a modern Algerian tile is from an old Moorish one. I can't say anything stronger. That's why I cut England to begin with, and after a while my interests were more identified with France. Sometimes I'd go to Paris in the summer, or to a little place in Dauphiny, but I haven't been back to England for eight years. Algeria holds all my heart. In Tlemcen is my girl. Here are my gardens and my beasts. Now you have my history since Oxford days. You know something of my history through the papers, Stephen blurted out with a desperate defiance of his own reserve. Not much of your real history, I think. Papers lie and people misunderstand. Don't talk of yourself unless you really want to. But I say, look here, Stephen. That woman I thought I cared for. May I tell you what she was like? Somehow I want you to know. Don't think me a cad. I don't mean to be. But may I tell? Of course, why not? She was dark and awfully handsome, and though she wasn't an actress, she would have made a splendid one. She thought only of herself. I, there was a picture in the London paper lately which reminded me of her the picture of a young lady you know, or think you know, they, those two, are of the same type. I don't believe either could make a man happy. Stephen laughed, a short, embarrassed laugh. Oh, happy, he echoed. After twenty-five we learn not to expect happiness, but thank you for everything and especially for inviting me here. He knew now why it occurred to Neville to ask him to Algiers. Neville had seen Margot's picture. In silence they walked towards the open door of the dining room. Somewhere not far away the Kabyle dogs were barking shrilly. In the distance rose and fell muffled notes of strange passion and fierceness. An Arab tom-tom beating like the heart of the conquered east away in the old town. Stephen's short-lived gaiety was struck out of his soul, for a moment white, then gone forever. He pushed the haunting words out of his mind. He did not want them to have any meaning. They had no meaning. It seemed to him that the perfume of the lilies was too heavy on the air. End of chapter 9